It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What's going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. We'll be talking in a bit with Madison Cawthorn. He is running for the 11th Congressional District in the Republican primary runoff or the second primary as it were also donald trump threatening to pull the republican convention out of charlotte we'll get into some of that as well after the chat with mr cawthorn want to thank uh some of the folks who make this show possible folks like brent and jk and patrick david Kristen, sarah trudy mary and gary i appreciate the support couldn't do it without you uh also i was talking with some friends uh, well my wife was talking with the friend and um we were then also both talking with different friends uh and they all got their mattresses at mattress man and i can't tell you how uh thankful i am that you guys uh, patronize the people who help make the program possible. Mattress Man Stores is one of them. Uh, and they also happen to have really great mattresses. Uh, they really do. We got a memory foam mattress from Mattress Man about, oh, probably about eight years ago now. Uh, we love it. Christy and I love it. It's like, I've said this before, it's like sleeping on a big marshmallow. If you've never laid on a uh, memory foam mattress, <laughs> I don't I don't know how else to describe it except it's like a it's like being on a marshmallow everything just forms like you lay in and you sink in and everything just kind of forms around you just like it it's like a mold uh it's so comfortable so whatever position you lay in or you know i find whatever position i lay in i'm comfortable I, I, i'm supported uh now some people prefer other mattresses like the inner spring mattress or pillow top mattresses or natural latex mattresses uh adjustable bases to elevate your feet to elevate your head uh and that's fine everybody has different preferences and everyone is you know different when how they sleep but certain positions uh, are best supported by certain mattresses and the sleep consultants at mattress man they can help you guide uh, guide you through all of that uh, because they go through six weeks of extensive training uh, on on mattresses and, and sleep positions and such and so they can help you pick the right mattress for you they've got their big memorial day sale it's going on right now uh, they've got the biltmore collection by restonic made in north carolina and Get a free box spring with the purchase of a Biltmore mattress. They also are giving away free adjustable bases with the purchase of select mattresses as well. Uh, You can sleep now and pay later. You can finance a new mattress for up to 24 months with 0% APR financing. So uh, check them out online, mattressmanstores.com, five-star delivery service, a 120-day comfort guarantee. Experience the difference at Mattress Man. Buy local and sleep better. If you voted in the Republican primary in the 11th Congressional District, you can vote in the runoff, also called the second primary. It's on June 23rd. Early voting begins June 4th and runs through June 20th. All registered Republicans and those unaffiliated who voted on March 3rd in the Republican primary can all vote in this runoff. So can unaffiliated voters who didn't vote in any March 3rd primary. Linda Bennett and Madison Cawthorn finished in the top two spots in that uh, primary among a field of 11 candidates, but neither had enough votes to avoid a runoff. So the runoff was originally scheduled for May 12th, but the pandemic prompted a postponement. So the 11th district now gets this runoff uh, coming up in June. The 11th district comprises the 17 westernmost counties in North Carolina, 
The seat was previously held by Mark Meadows until he resigned to take the job of chief of staff for President Donald Trump. The Republican winner is going to face Democrat Mo Davis in the November 3rd general election. Madison Cawthorn is one of the Republicans I just mentioned, and he joins me now. Welcome to the show. Madison, how are you, sir? Pete, I'm doing really well. Uh, it's an honor to be here on this show. I know you have a, a big listenership, especially here in the 11th District, so I'm excited to flesh out the issues with you, brother. So uh, tell me, what's it like campaigning during the plague? I will tell you, I I, I feel like, you know, the the Egyptians uh, back in the in the Bible days when they were having to deal with all the, uh, the, the, the afflictions and the plagues that they had to go through. Uh, but I will tell you, this is a, this has been a time where I really had to put my money where my mouth was, uh, throughout the entire first primary. I, I spoke very often of, we need to elect a candidate who can, who can compete in traditional, uh, public arenas like cable news on a debate stage and things like that, and be able to carry a message for, you know, those kind of generations. But we also need to elect a candidate who will be able to compete in the new town square, you know, things like social media, things like podcasts, someone who will be able to, to be able to carry a message and, and influence these, this new block of voters who is predominantly very far left-leaning. And so as I'm sure you can imagine, this made me put my money where my mouth was. And I had to say, well, actually, I, this is the only arena I can compete in for quite a while. And so fortunately, our campaign's been very adept with being able to do that. And so it's a – it's been quite, quite a, quite a ride. I wouldn't say it's been difficult. It's just been very different. Yeah, I would, I would, I would ask, like, how does this compare to a quote normal campaign? But this is your first campaign for an office, right? So, like, there's no, not only is it during a plague, but there's nothing really to compare it to for your, for yourself. No, you're absolutely right, and I, I think that that may actually be an advantage. Uh, as you know, my opponent, she has a significant amount of backing from very established uh, Republicans and conservatives. And because of that, I'm sure that she has a significant amount of, of, of tips and tricks that she's gotten from them. But fortunately, uh, no one has any experience of learning to campaign in this kind of an era unless you were uh, you were campaigning back in the 1920s. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you so you're you were raised in the digital era, right? I mean, you're born and raised. You, you, I mean, do you even know what like an eight track is uh, or an album? Like, uh, you know, I, I'm a Gen Xer. I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to label you, but are you are, you're a millennial. Is that the or is that the generation you're in? You know what? I thought I was a millennial for quite a while, but I actually just found out that I am the very first year of Gen Z. Oh. So I am. I am. A, I'm the oldest possible age you can be for a Gen Zer. But uh, so I am I am very much a digital baby. I was raised in the digital era. And this is a, this is really all I've really, really grown to know, especially since since the 2000s. And so it's a, it's been quite a uh, quite an adventure. But I think it's given me quite the edge in this era of campaigning. Right. That's why I ask is that it, it, it's sort of like the fish doesn't know it's wet. Like this is just the whole environment that you've always known. So uh, it, there's not a uh, there's not as much of a learning curve, I guess. Oh no, you're you're so right. It's, it's it's almost become second nature to really just be able to to share what's going on, to be able to quickly articulate through you know think of a Facebook message or on a video and learning how to compose yourself on video. And so I I think it's really given me quite the advantage for this campaign. Did you feel any sense of relief when you found out you were not? A millennial? No, you don't have to answer that. I'm just kidding. You don't have to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I, I believe that the uh, the millennial generation has such a bad rap, and they I've got to say, it's uh, it's not necessarily unfounded. 
Uh, you know, I look so far around, and I, I believe that probably the Gen Zer generation seems to be a little bit more conservative than the previous generation of millennials. And the main reason because of that is I, I just think that our education system has become so far left and it, it's indoctrinated the the majority of the, you know, the 1400 population so much that they are they are just they, they expect so much to be handed to them. They expect so much to just come for free. And I think that's why we see this socialist sentiment rising up in our country. Well, and yeah, the, the millennials that have those views, they were given those views by boomers and gen xers so i don't think we're all off the hook uh on that front either so um let me ask you you said you, you talked about carrying the message so um how would you describe your political philosophy what is this message that you want to carry to people particularly those that you just mentioned that may have been you know steeped in a leftist ideology uh, you know, I would say that my my political ideology really comes from. Like, I would say I get my morality from a place like ancient Jerusalem. I get my uh, my method for wanting to to how how I want to govern from Athens with democracy and democratic thinking, and then I really get my my love for the rule of law and, and systems of government from Rome, ancient Rome, and studying all those cultures, uh, and then you know studying philosophers like John Locke with the social contract. And all of those really inform my opinions to give me very uh, conservative beliefs. But when you condense all of that down, I think that what the underlying basis of all of that is, is personal responsibility. And so, you know, that means that you are responsible for your failings and just as much as you're responsible for your successes. And I really appreciate that kind of system of, of a way to live because that makes me believe that I have the pen of destiny in my own hand. Because, you know, I, I believe I, I'm, I'm a strong Christian. I believe that God gave us free will. And thankfully, I live in a country where our founding fathers really gave us a, a free will of our own as well. And so I just want to make sure that the government is as out of our lives as we possibly can. You know, I, I'm not some kind of anarchist, but I do believe in a limited, scaled back government, very, uh, very constitutional. And so I, I think that, you know, it all comes down to personal responsibility, which I think can also be defined in another way as freedom as freedom to make your own decisions, as freedom to, to live your own life in the way that you choose. So how do you sell that, for lack of a better term, to people, um, I, I, I'm trying to remember who it was that told me this, but like th one of the hardest things in selling conservatism uh, and limited government principles is that you're, like, you're almost literally promising nothing, right? Like, you know, vote for me, I'm not going to do anything for you. Uh, so how do you sell that versus someone who comes along and says, I want to give you free college, I want to give you free health care, I want to give you free housing? Uh, well, no, I think that that's the absolute major problem we've been having in the Republican Party for, you know, I, you can call it the last two or three decades. We've had a major messaging problem where, you know, we've gotten into this big habit of wanting to, you know, basically just promise nothing. And we've so often been the party of no without really offering uh, any, any different different kind of solutions. I mean, take health care, for example. You know, when, when they came out with Obamacare and we were trying to, to take that down, uh, we were very we weren't really offering anything else to replace it. And, you know, I am a very strong advocate for for very limited regulations in the healthcare system. But I believe that it's very actually become easy to sell for, especially for me, because I've grown up watching this messaging problem my entire life. I've been very politically involved. It was a normal conversation around my dinner table from the, from the time I was very young. And then I worked on campaigns as early as I could. So I've always been watching this political process. And I've always thought, you know. We do have a messaging problem in the Republican Party. It's not that we don't have a compelling messenger. 
we just don't have anyone who can deliver that message comp- in a compelling way. And so I believe that's why you see so many people, are, especially in, in you know the 40 and under generation, who are moving so far left on the spectrum. And because said Republicans have gotten this habit of promising nothing. Whereas I believe that if, if we sell it in a way that it says, hey, you know what? I'm not promising you nothing. I'm promising you freedom. I am promising you the ability to go out and to earn something. And the thing that I love about freedom, the thing that I love about free market capitalism is I think that in the end, it really does promise more than what the government could say if they wanted to give you everything. You know, it's often been, it's oftentimes been said, that, you know, free market capitalism unequal amounts of wealth, whereas government-controlled tyranny or socialism or whatever you want to call it, liberalism, is unequal is, is equal amounts of poverty. And so I'd much rather live in a system of government where, you know, think about health care. Uh, I would much rather have to so where in North Carolina, we basically have a virtual monopoly of Blue Cross Blue Shield who gets to make all of the prices artificially high because they're one of the only providers of insurance here who are protected by this artificial market. But I believe if we remove the regulations for that, we allow competition to come into here. It, it's going to make the prices fall and the quality increase. Think of I mean, it just as a really simple analogy. It's like having a pizza delivered to your house. Where I live, I've got six different companies competing for my dollars. So that means they're all always competing to have the lowest prices, the best food, and the quickest service. And I think that's what we need in just about every single industry. So it sounds like this is uh, the healthcare topic. This this is an important topic for you, an important issue for you. Is this, uh, and usually I'll ask people who are running for office, if you go to, uh, in this case, D.C., you win, you go to D.C., uh, but you can only get one thing done. And it doesn't matter how long it takes, but you can only get one thing done. What would the one thing be? That's. Uh, I'm really glad you asked that. It's my absolute desire to be the face of the Republican Party when it comes to health care reform. Uh, but if you, if, you, if, you, if you put the gun to my head, you said, hey, you have to decide right now. You only get to get one thing done. What's going to be? And although I really do want to uh, reform healthcare, I think my number one goal would be infrastructure inc- improvements. Uh, I really think that we need some strategic public investments uh, just to make our country a more competitive marketplace. You know, I feel like you know, not so long ago we used to be the envy of the world when it came to infrastructure, but we have fallen very far from that nowadays. I mean, I, I think the the Army Corps of Engineers. A statistic out there that saying how many of our bridges in our country need repair, need fixing, or else to remain safe, and I think it's over 50% of them. Uh, you know, take Western North Carolina for example. Our far western counties. I mean, mothers are having to drive their children to sit outside of a McDonald's so that they can connect to Wi-Fi because there's not easy access to broadband internet. There's no cell phone service they can use to use data. And so I think that we need to offer tax incentives to different companies so that they can take uh, digital infrastructure out to the pl- places of our country that do not have that available to them. And then I think we really need to follow through on our promises of having the best road systems in the world. Uh, you know, this is just I, I won't get too deep into local politics, but I mean, you know, you got Corridor, Corridor K here in the Western counties, Highway 64. They all need some major improvements. And that's um, the role of the federal government, you think? Uh, you know, I, I believe so mainly because we had we the federal government receives so much money. I think they could offer a lot of grants to different states so that they could use that money for those things. And I believe it may be the role of the federal government right now because the federal government is the one who's destroyed our economy. And of course, we were having to work off of uh, bad information because, you know, it, all of my friends were more than happy to shut their businesses down when they were told, hey, two million Americans are going to die if we're not able to get 
how, you know, our PPE capacity and our ventilator capacity up to par. And so my friends were more than happy to shut their businesses down so that they could save Americans. We're all sensible and rational people. Uh, but when we started, you know, not seeing bodies lining the streets, we started seeing that, hey, you know, this has got really only a two, maybe one and a half percent death rate. Uh, you know, we were like, hey, I think we've shut our economy down for a, a reason that was not as severe as we thought it was going to be. And so I believe that the federal government has mandated this go- this economic shutdown, which has really slowed everything. And I think when the quarter two earnings reports come out in the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ, we're going to see a much worse economic time than we are right now. Uh, and so because of that, I, I would love to introduce some in- infrastructure re- legislation that put all- so many Americans back to work. Right now, we have over 30 million Americans out of work. We just went from the hot, the best economy in the world, thanks to D- President Donald Trump and his leadership, to now we're, we're really, really just go- treading water. And almost everyone's savings are almost completely spent up. And so I think that if we, if we introduce more infrastructure uh, reform and more improvements, that would give us an opportunity to give people jobs without having to give them a stimulus check. So um, along those lines, you may very well be in the minority party when uh, you get to D.C. if you win in the primary and in the general. Um, so what do you get done under that reality? Uh, infrastructure uh, seems like something Democrats are interested uh, in doing as well. So is that something you see yourself working with? Democrats to get done? You know, that is actually the reason why I chose infrastructure uh, in, instead of that. And that's a big reason why I, I, we've really shifted our campaign's message to push for infrastructure, because that's something I feel like I'd be able to accomplish, like you said, even if I was in the minority party. I think that's something that we could really have some bipartisan support on. And we could we could show Americans that, hey, we're not always at, at one another's throats. We can, we're working on your behalf, which is what I'd like to see. I really hope that these these you know people that I would define as kind of bomb throwers, whether they're on the Republican Party or they're on the Democratic Party, there's these people who are just interested in sensationalism, interested on in being on Fox News or CNN, and I think they just they just kind of like just to throw a bomb and see what happens, and just they're kind of a explosive rhetoric. Whereas I really want to go up there and work on behalf of the American people. That's actually that's one of the things I talked with Congressman McHenry, Patrick McHenry, about uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago about this very topic, because he was a self-described bomb thrower when he first arrived in D.C. And he said, uh, you know, there's a there is a value to having bomb throwers in the caucus. But um, if you want to get stuff done, it doesn't work. Um, there is a you know an overall benefit to having people out there that do that work for the party. But if you want to try to get things done, uh, you got to learn how to work with your colleagues across the aisle and not be constantly throwing bombs. So, uh, and like I said, they or he said, you know, they both serve a purpose. Absolutely, and you know, I, I plan to go up there and to represent my true, very strongly held beliefs of uh, conservatism. Uh, you know, I, I would define myself as 40 percent a conservative ideologue and about 60 percent a conservative pragmatic. Uh, so I, I really am interested in getting things done while still maintaining my conservative values. Uh, but, you know, you look at someone like Congressman Patrick McHenry uh, or Congressman Mark Walker in the, in the uh, more mm-hmm. eastern part of the state. Or even if you look into our past in North Carolina 11, Congressman Charles Taylor, these are the kind of congressmen I would really like to emulate. These are the people who I think actually get things done. They're, they're, they have brick and mortar changes that have uh, they've really affected change in their particular district that's been beneficial for their for their constituents, which I think is a rare thing in Congress these days. Um, I, I thought it was interesting, though, that you said you want to be the face of health care for the Republican Party, but you 
would prefer to be all about infrastructure. So why the like why why that difference of a uh, uh, train of thought? I guess why like why do you say like you want to be the face of the healthcare, but you would prefer to to focus on the healthcare? Uh, well, these are the, mainly because I believe healthcare reform is going to take a very long time. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to be in the in the uh, majority party. Although, as you just saw, the Republicans had a very big win in the special election out in California. Mm-hmm. So it's looking like we could have a red wave uh, coming up in 2000 and for the for this election cycle. Uh, but you know, it, I, if let, let me go ahead and paint it this way: if we're in the minority party, I would I think I'm probably going to focus on infrastructure. But if we have an opportunity like we had in 2016, the House, we took the Senate, and we had the presidency. And so I really expected to see these big sweeping changes in a constitutional republic just rising up. Uh, but what really happened is I feel like the president was working very hard to fulfill his campaign promises, which was excellent, which is exactly what we needed. Whereas in the Congress, we have always had these Republican politicians who would always just whenever we'd say, hey, why why? Is the government so large? Why is there so much spending? Why why is why is this like this? Why is this so unconstitutional? And they would always say, oh, they'd cry foul and they'd point at the Democrats, say it's because of those guys. But when we were actually in the majority in the Senate, in the House, and especially in the presidency, we had the ability to really make changes. We didn't do it. I feel like we really wasted in a lot of these career politicians who I hope are being voted out of office and being replaced by true conservatives, people who actually want to get something done. Uh, I, I think that they wasted that, that opportunity. So if we were in the majority party like we were in 2016, my main emphasis is going to be healthcare. Uh, but if we're not in the majority party, my main emphasis will be infrastructure because that's something I think I can actually get done. Gotcha. Uh, I told listeners that I was going to be interviewing you. Some of them, um, submitted questions that they would like to hear answered. So Krista asked, if elected to Congress, what does he believe will be a priority for Western North Carolina, and will he push for more tax cuts? Oh, that is a great question, Krista. Uh, you know, I spent last afternoon with a significant amount of, uh, of our hospitality industry leaders here in Western North Carolina. So the, a lot of these gentlemen owned uh, gentlemen and women owned hotels, and they, they were very interested in the in the, in the um, tourism industry, which is so p- pivotal to Western North Carolina. And so the things that I would really want to do to help Western North Carolina is to impose and tax and slash, you know, regulations mainly, but especially taxes. I believe that tax cuts is the best thing we can do because the more money we can put in the pockets of Americans, the better it will go. I, I really think that for every single dollar that the private se- that the the government spends, I think that that dollar is could be worth ten times more if the private sector spent it. Uh, I think the private sector gets things done more efficiently almost every single time. And so, I mean, you look at the United States Postal Service versus FedEx. I mean, I, I, just, I just really believe that the uh, I, I believe that the private sector does better. So, yes, Krista, I do uh, support tax cuts because I want you to have more money, more of your own money in your own pocket. Uh, but my main focus would be for Western North Carolina specifically is infrastructure. Like I was saying in the yeah. beginning, especially getting that digital infrastructure out west. You said uh, on your website that you're for term limits. Uh, what would be your ideal term limit? How many years? How many terms? House, Senate? Like, is it a combination of both? Um, and is that something then that you would uh, apply to yourself, even if there is no rule that you have to uh, uh, term limit? 
Oh, well, so I'll answer that que that question in order of how you asked it. Uh, so when it comes to how long I think the term limit should be, uh, oftentimes people say, oh, people should only go up and serve two or three terms. And then there's a great counter argument to that that says, oh, but then you would have so many just uh, very green and very new politicians who aren't seasoned to this process. And so they would be less effective. Mm -hmm. And I there's a lot of truth to that. And so I don't believe it should be so short. I think that if you spent 12 years in the House, you had two terms in the Senate, which I believe was another 12 years. Mm -hmm. I think that that is a that that's plenty of time to affect change, because, you know, with these career politicians who aren't worried about who are just constantly worried about making sure they get reelected. I feel like they always kind of do things that feel good to people. Not they don't really take hard stands. But I believe that if we knew that we were going to have to leave office, all of these type A personalities who are up there would really want to make a lasting change and say, hey, when I was in office, this is what I got done in the time that I had. And so I believe that, that would really give it incentivize these politicians to actually work on our behalf. And so, uh, and so if that's not a rule that term limits don't get passed uh, while you're there, um, would you are, are you going to self limit your your own terms? Absolutely not. I believe that it's a it's a disservice that a lot of really hard right conservatives have done to themselves to do this uh, so-called self-term limiting, uh, because if it, if it's not applied to the Democrats and, and to the other side as well, then it, it really just weakens our party. It let, allows them to rack up so many very 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 high in the seniority uh, Congress people, while we are having to just constantly have a new fresh face come in all the time. And I think that that is that weakens us. It's it's often how I kind of I I, I relate it to uh, to to free trade o overseas. We always believe in free trade. It's something that I have always thought was was the best option. But I think Donald Trump was really showing us, especially before this COVID nineteen crisis, that it's not necessarily free trade that's best. It's actually fair trade because if the entire world's not working on the same system, we're just putting ourselves at a disadvantage because we're we're too ideologically. Uh, conservative because we only want fair free trade now if I, I like i said i do i am a conservative ideologue but i am very pragmatic and i want to do what's best for the american people um and i, I want to be respectful of your time so i got one more question though that i'd like to ask you it's about um you versus linda bennett in this runoff you said uh in a article in the citizen times uh, that if she's too afraid to debate you, a fellow conservative, where you agree on most things, how is she going to fare against an Air Force Guantanamo prosecutor, which is the Democrat uh, that one of you will face in November? So let me ask you, how do you think you'd fare against him? You know, I think I'd fare really well, uh, I, especially given the, the, our choices between myself or Ms. Bennett. Uh, it's been shown time and time again of how, if, if especially if she's attacked on her character or it's it's a personal attack, she gets very flustered and and, and really represents herself and her party in a poor fashion. And so I, I have no doubt this Democrat Mo Davis is studying me and my opponent Linda Bennett, and he's trying to find our weaknesses. And so fortunately, uh, with with my disability, there's very few things he can particularly attack me on because of, because of that particular issue. And because I am also just a, a I, I would consider myself a squeaky clean conservative. Uh, there's really no baggage that I have that he can bring up to attack me on personally. So that means that we're going to have to have a debate that is focused on policy. And I will tell you, I'm more than happy to defend the causes of conservatism and my my beliefs that of limited government and a constitutional republic against the greatest debate of the liberals would ever have because at the end of the day they're having to defend a losing argument i mean it's been shown time and time again that this far left ideology ideology 
And I'm sure that my Democratic, uh, that my Democratic opponent, Mo Davis, is going to really try and paint himself as what I would call a blue dog Democrat. Uh, we were fortunate enough to really – we got a lot of his, his website during the primary while he was running against a lot of other far-left uh, uh, liberals and had such far-left liberal views to get elected from the, these, these really deep blue uh, urban Buckham County and Asheville mm-hmm. Democrats. And so he was supporting things like you know the Green New Deal, and, and he was supporting things that were just very radical ideas. And so I'm sure, although he may want to now paint himself as this this blue dog Democrat, middle of the road guy, we know that's not what he really believes. We have the evidence to back it up. And so I'm more than he's going to be representing the Democratic Party, and I'll be representing the party that who's ushered in the greatest economy we've ever had. I am more than happy to take him on anytime, anywhere, under any rules. Madison Cawthorn, he is a Republican candidate in the runoff for the District 11 Republican nomination. And uh, early voting begins June 4th, runs through June 20th. His website, MadisonCawthorn.com. That's C-A-W-T-H-O-R-N. No E at the end. So MadisonCawthorn.com. Madison, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk to you at some point uh, down the campaign trail. Steve is really pleasure i lord willing i'll be able to speak to you as the victor after uh, june 23rd i'll be more than happy to come back on the show sounds good i appreciate your time are you prepared for a disaster do you need some advice on how to be prepared for one are you looking for military surplus that's real well for more than three decades the answer has been old grouch's military surplus in downtown clyde it is an old school traditional store it's got a mix of modern and vintage items See my friend Tim. He's going to hook you up. He gets new stuff in all the time. It's American-made because it's real military surplus. Camo, shirts, hats, customized dog tags, gear, old grouches on Main Street, downtown Clyde, across the street from the anti-aircraft gun and at oldgrouch.com. Also, this show is made possible by Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. Her phone number is 333-4483. Her website is mountainhomehunt.com. I have had good realtors. I've had experience with not-so-good ones. Rowena and her team... They're good ones. They're great ones, actually. They outsell 99% of the real estate agents in the entire state, okay? Call the only agent that I would call if I'm looking for a house or if I'm looking to sell my house. Call Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com, and start packing. And finally, the show is also made possible by Schaefer Smith. Have you seen the logo of the Pete Callender Show? He did that. If you're trying to set up your website, maybe you need a logo. Call my friend Schaefer Smith at Schaefer Smith Design. He can help you with logos, graphics, photos, an online store, search engine optimization, website maintenance, and security. He does this for professional services, corporations, small businesses, entrepreneurs. If you know now the importance of having a good functional website, Get in touch with Schaefer Smith. Make your site look professional, user-friendly for both your customers and you so you can uh, navigate it and fix it and adapt to whatever the market demands. SchaeferSmith.com. That's SchaeferSmith.com. All righty. On Memorial Day, Monday... President Donald Trump threatened to pull the Republican convention out of North Carolina, and he did this on Twitter. But of course, uh, here is what he said in a, in a in four tweets in a tweet storm. 
series of them. Uh, he said, I love the great state of North Carolina so much uh, so that I insisted on having the Republican National Convention in Charlotte at the end of August. Uh, by the way, just a footnote there. He may have insisted on that. I don't know that to be true or false. I would point out, though, that Charlotte, if I remember correctly, was like the only city that bid on the RNC. And so it's definitely easier to win a convention when nobody else wanted the convention. But um, unfortunately, he goes on to say, unfortunately, Democrat Governor Roy Cooper is still in shutdown mood and unable to guarantee that by August we will be allowed full attendance in the arena. In other words, we would be spending millions of dollars building the arena to a very high standard without even knowing if the Democrat governor would allow the Republican Party to fully occupy the space. Plans are being made by many thousands of enthusiastic Republicans and others to head to beautiful North Carolina in August. They must be, well, I don't know, North Carolina in August. It's, um, I guess it's beautiful. It's really hot. I can tell you that. Anyway, he says they must be immediately given an answer by the governor as to whether or not the space will be allowed to be fully occupied. And if not, we will be reluctantly forced to find, with all of the jobs and economic development it brings, another Republican National Convention site. That is not something I want to do. Thank you. And I love, all caps, I love the people of North Carolina. All right, so those were the tweets. I just put them all together. Four tweets uh, and uh, message uh, received, right? The Republican president wants some clarity from the Democrat governor. Uh, are we going to be able to have our convention in the arena like we are wanting to do? Because you down in North Carolina, governor, are rolling out the reopen uh, at a slower pace than virtually every other state. And... Um, He's getting some criticism now. All right. So there is some uh, there's a point to this in, in that, you know, Donald Trump does. And the Republicans, they do need some clarity here. Right. They, they do need to know uh, what's the, the plan. And uh, as we get closer to the August, um, I think it's the 24th yeah, through the 27th is the uh, is the convention dates. So as we get closer to these dates, you know, things be things things start happening that you can't you can't reverse, right? You, you got to put money down, deposits down, you got to build stuff. And uh, if we're not getting any kind of direction, uh, then we need to go someplace where we can get some sort of direction about the, the, the pace that we are uh, going to reopen. And Governor Cooper has not exactly been completely forthright in his predictions uh, and his promises of what's going to open and when it doesn't. And I would direct you to phase two, when he originally said all of these things will be reopened, and then he turned around and went, uh, only reopened some of them to, to different degrees. So uh, you got a lot of people that were planning to reopen, like gyms and bars, and now they can't. And then remember on Friday, uh, there was the, the, the mad scramble over the, uh, the question of breweries. Do they fall under the bar or the restaurant rule? And the breweries were like, we were expecting to open and now we can't. And so then the governor's legal team, they were like, oh, we're totally working on something and we'll have it done for you by five when the executive order takes effect. And then they didn't have it done by five. They they got it out the door like a half hour after five. Uh, so like that's that's been the kind of operational uh, 
effectiveness and efficiency that we've been seeing from the governor's administration. And I suggested about a week ago that we should, I don't know, maybe contemplate the idea that just perhaps, just maybe, Governor Cooper is not very adept at managing crises. And I know there are a lot of people in the media uh, that want to, uh, you know, white knight for this governor because he's a Democrat uh, and because he's going to, you know, stick it to the Republicans. He's going to fight the Republicans. And, uh, you know, Governor Cooper, he's not a political guy at all in their estimation. Uh, But given his past experience, guys, I think it's important to just, you know, entertain the idea. I'm not saying you have to attack him or write pieces about it. Just entertain the idea. Just put it into your head that maybe he's not very good at this. It's possible, right? Why is there an assumption that he is good at it? Why would there be this automatic default assumption that a uh, 30-year legislator for out of the out of the Senate and the uh, majority leader and then the attorney general, like does he have any actual management experience? Like executive management experience, does he have that? And considering his past record of how he has managed uh, response to hurricanes and he has managed in his administration has managed uh, certain like the DOT. By the way, did you know that the DOT guy Trogden, Jim Trogden, uh, do you know he's out over all of the overspending, the mismanagement to DOT? Yeah, he's he's gone. Like, I think he he resigned quietly when the governor issued his first executive orders. Like nobody even realized that he was out. Yeah, so you got stuff like that going on. So maybe, just maybe, he's not particularly good at managing crises. Just throwing it out there. Uh, and so the president is looking at this, and uh, he says, hey, you're a slow roll in this thing. You're getting, uh, oh, sorry, another point. Media folks might want to just entertain this idea that Governor Cooper is getting pressure from Democrat-based activists to cancel the convention. There are a lot of Democrats that never wanted the convention to come here. They hate Donald Trump with the passion of, you know, 15 sons. And so they don't uh, want the convention to be in Charlotte. And they didn't want it in the first place. They don't want it now. And now they've got an excuse with the COVID-19 pandemic to just pull the plug on the whole thing. And if you don't think he's getting that kind of pressure, you're crazy. Of course he is. I see it. I can see the pressure that he's getting. So, you know, he's getting it. But that's never part of this equation. So we'll get to that in a minute. Jonah Kaplan at ABC 11, he said phase three could begin as early as June 26th, but it is highly unlikely that that could allow for crowds of more than 1,000, let alone 20,000. Honestly, he said, if uh, I'm curious if there's any state open to welcome thousands of -of out-of-state travelers and pack them into a large space. Well, Answer is yes, there are. Georgia has already started wooing the convention. Jacksonville has apparently started making overtures. There are cities and and states that are like, hey, you know what? We've kind of been ravaged economically through all of this. We would love to have all of y'all come and pump a ton of money into our local economy. Like, that's how they're looking at it. Does that mean that they're just going to, you know, hey, everybody just behave, you know, unsafely? No. They'll take precautions. They're going to uh, do what they uh, feel like they need to do, and people will assess the risk of going and hanging out in these large spaces and such. And, you know, we'll see if, um, as we're getting closer to reopening and 
uh, in different states. And as we get closer to the convention, we're going to see, like, are these gatherings uh, going to flare up hot spots? We'll find out, right? I mean, honestly, as long as they don't hold it in, like, a nursing home in New York, I think it's going to be okay. That's, sorry, that's too soon. By the way, I've got details on that. Uh, nursing homes and, uh, like, that. these are the worst places to be. Uh, it's where it's like 40-something percent of all of the uh, fatalities are coming out of nursing homes across America. In North Carolina, it's two-thirds. So um, let me see here. Uh, oh, so this was particularly interesting. So when the president puts out his tweets, the governor's Twitter account responds, and it says, quote, state health officials are working with the RNC and will review its plans as they make decisions about how to hold the convention in Charlotte. North Carolina is relying on data and science to protect our state's public health and safety. This is, by the way, the mantra of Cooper and his uh, administration. Science and data and facts. Science and data and facts. Science and data and facts. So am I. Science and data and facts. So am I. That, that's, it, it, it's comical. It's now to the point of comedy where they just throw these terms out there whenever they're saying whatever it is they want to say about why they've decided what they've decided. And they just say, it's the science. We're just following the science, the data, and the facts. So am I. That's all. We're just following these things. And this is our decision. Because the science and the data and the facts say that this is, that this is the right decision. And we're guided by the science and the data and the facts in a factual, sciencey, data-driven way. Neil, A guy named Neil Inman goes on Twitter and he says the governor's ability to say nothing substantive uh, at any point is truly remarkable, which that that's a, yeah, that's a non-answer, right? What the, what the governor's press shop put out on Memorial day in response to uh, the president's tweets, it's a non-answer. Okay. So you're working with the RNC. We'll review the plans. Um, and we're going to rely on the science and the data and the facts. So my, that's a non-statement. Okay. And so this fellow, Neil Inman, who's in uh, uh, political Twitter, and he says it's amazing that he can, you know, say stuff without saying anything substantive. And then it's a really interesting window into North Carolina political media. Uh, And I quote this individual's behavior often, Travis Fain, he is the capital reporter for WRAL, which is a, you know, leading uh, influencer of North Carolina political coverage, and he responds, quote, they clearly haven't decided. You know the answer is they haven't decided. Right? So he's correcting this fellow named Neil Inman, and, and uh, who got retweeted by a guy named Jim Blaine, who is a Republican campaign manager. He uh, worked on uh, Congressman Dan Bishop's campaign, if I remember correctly. And so Jim Blaine and Neil Inman were, you know, promoting this idea that Cooper has this ability to say, and his team, because that's who actually put the statement out, that they can say nothing substantive at any point. They say it's truly remarkable. And Travis Fain, a reporter, rides into the rescue, white knighting for Governor Cooper, right? They clearly haven't decided. Both of you know the answer is they haven't decided. So Jim Blaine said, if you know that, where is a WRAL story with a quote from Governor Cooper's own mouth? Maybe uh, he says he prefers video um, that we haven't decided. Did they say we haven't decided? Because that's not what the spokesperson said. 
Y'all take it awful easy on your golden boy, Blaine said, explaining what he means even when he doesn't say anything. This is what I mean by the benefit of the doubt. Do you give, who do you, to whom do you give the benefit of the doubt as a reporter? And you can clearly see that they're always willing to ascribe the best of intentions and motives to the people that they like. In this case, Governor Cooper, because the big D shield, right, it protects you from all sorts of attacks. And in this case, the reporter runs in with the shield, you know, throwing his body in front of the uh, the Republican uh, Twitter people. You know, I'll take the bullet for you, Governor. And bam, bam. Like he takes the bullet Oh, you, because, you know, he's he just hasn't decided yet. It's clear. You don't. But, but he doesn't know that. He doesn't know that. Travis Fain does not know. I assume he doesn't know because there's no quote from the governor saying we haven't decided. So you're assuming that he hasn't decided because here's an idea and I'm just spitballing here. But what if the governor has? What if the governor has already decided? I don't know if he has or hasn't. But what if he has? Isn't that one of the potential outcomes here? Right. Isn't it possible that the governor and his team have already come to a conclusion that they really don't want this convention here? And this might be a good opportunity to Put the kibosh on the whole thing. Sorry, COVID-19, right? There's also um, out in the uh, in the uh, political atmosphere right now, there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of static energy building up, if you will, about the uh, about the Democratic governor who is slow rolling the reopen and doing it in order to get the convention canceled. And if you don't think Team Cooper knows that this is out there, that these rumors are swirling. You're kidding yourself, right? Of course they know this is out there. So they know that these rumors are out there. Obviously, the president does too. So he goes after him, uh, goes after Cooper on Twitter saying, hey, you need to tell us what's up. You need to give us some sort of a guarantee. And uh, Cooper's team comes back, oh, we're just looking at the science and the data and the facts. So am I. And then here comes Travis Fain. Let me get in front of this criticism for you, Governor. Please call on me at the next press conference. But he doesn't actually know that. He just purports to know it. He just assumes that Cooper doesn't have a decision made. You know, there has, you know, Democrats have been rallying and lobbying to try to get the convention canceled. They've been trying to limit it. They Well, first they tried to block it, right? They tried to say, don't you dare do this when Charlotte was putting in the bid. Um, and the only reason that that... I'm convinced the only reason that uh, the Democratic leadership in Charlotte uh, got the bid together and submitted it was because the Republicans helped them do the DNC bid back in, what, 2008, I think it was, or 2012, 2012, right? So they hosted it in 2012 for the Democrats, and the Republicans actively helped the, uh, the Democrats get that convention, right? They showed bipartisanship they went on the meetings they went to the sales pitches and everything they were like please pick us they were part of that effort and so now fast forward eight years they want a convention for their party and a lot of democrats they couldn't very well say no even though they wanted to because it's donald trump and they've been getting a lot of grief ever since they have these uh, local democratic officials uh, they've been under pressure to cancel this First to say no, first to not even apply, then to uh, then to try to find a way to back out. And uh, now this looks like a, a, a an easy escape hatch to jump down. Brent Woodcox uh, then responded. He's a lawyer, by the way, for the Senate 
leader uh, Phil Berger, and he says, uh, an, honest, an honestly weird genre of tweet is North Carolina political reporters explaining what the governor meant after he refuses to say what he meant plainly. I'm starting to think that some folks have Stockholm Syndrome from the COVID-19 press conference lockdown that the governor's team has instituted for two months here. That's right. right. Like, if you're trying, th- this is always the, there's always a delicate balancing act that reporters have to uh, have to do. Because on the one hand, you're supposed to be, you know, holding the powerful accountable, right? You're supposed to be speaking truth to power. You're supposed to be um, uh, holding them accountable. And, and then on the other hand, though, you need them for the access. You need them to to get interviews, right? If you want to get interviews with these elected officials, you it's it's tough to you know to nail them all the time and then expect them to take your calls or to call on you at a press conference when they're call screening everybody who dials in. This has been going on now for two months, five days a week, where reporters call in and reporters from certain outlets never get called on, even though they're first in line. So it's not even a first come, first serve. They don't even do it like that, which that's the way you should do it. And if you're not going to do it that way, then you need to do it as a sign. Then you need to do like a lottery system. You need to do you need to do something other than what they are doing where they're call screening out certain uh, outlets. If you have a byline uh, or sorry, a uh, uh, affiliation, you know, if you're with one of the the ew, icky kinds of uh, publications or media outlets, then they don't ever call on you. Why are reporters having to act as the governor's spokespeople? Right? Why, why, why do reporters feel this need to do damage control for the governor every time he speaks? Why is it on you to tell me what you think he meant? Why are you babying him? This is, again, like... You guys create soft politicians that don't know how to answer questions. That's been that's been Cooper's problem for a very long time. I was talking about this when he was running for governor four years ago in the campaigns. And anytime you would press him on tough issues, he folded because when you're when you never have any practice having your ideas challenged, uh, you get soft. Right? Resistance to pressure builds strength. Then there was Deb Butler. Remember Deb Butler? Yeah, she of the we will not yield during the veto override vote. I will not yield, Mr. Speaker. I will not yield. There is no. You shall not usurp the process, Mr. Speaker. Yeah, that Deb Butler. She uh, sent out a tweet that said, uh, because Roy Cooper and Secretary Mandy Cohen believe in the science and facts and data. Oh, my science and facts and data. Oh, my. Because they believe in the science and the facts and the safety of our citizens, they will not be bullied when it comes to public health decisions. We might be Southern, but we are not stupid. Oh, I have a feeling that stupid is going to be the word of the day as uh, the governor and his team uh, make the case that they are relying on the science and data and facts, oh my, to make all of their decisions. Congressman Dan Bishop He said, Donald Trump isn't the only one noticing. Roy Cooper's slow-witted handling has taken North Carolina from mild COVID-19 outbreak uh, to the Southeast region recovery laggard in under 90 days. No hotspot management, intensive nursing home support, transparency, or consensus building. He's right. I'm still amazed that that they're not requiring 
at the nursing homes and such, they're not requiring constant testing of not just the patients, but the staffers. Like This is the vector, right? These are the people who are most at risk of dying from COVID-19. It's where the outbreaks occur, where the fatalities are occurring. It's in the nursing homes. And lack of explanation for the lack of response, it really is amazing. Right? These, they're like, oh, well, you know, we're encouraging testing. Why are you simply encouraging testing, right? Why are you just encouraging this? You're telling businesses they cannot open. You're, you're mandating things on them. But for the nursing homes where people are most at risk and the, the, the outbreaks are occurring and people are dying in greater numbers than anywhere else, those are just recommendations. Yeah, you know what? We recommend you do some tests. And then on the unemployment side, you have all these people that, are, that got thrown out of work. The unemployment system is such a mess, you can't get out the, the, the checks to these people. And, uh, oh, well, he told his people to do better. Oh, okay, well, then that settles it. Good thing we've got Governor Cooper on the case telling people to do better. Oh, man, thank God for Governor Cooper. All he needs to do is to just say do better, and that means everybody is going to get their checks, although they haven't, but they will at some point because he said to do better. Man, it's great to be a Democrat, I tell you. (laughs) It, It really must be. You get to... You get to not send out hundreds of thousands of unemployment benefits to people who haven't had a paycheck uh, in two months because of your order, and it's okay. You don't even get a question about it at most press conferences every day. The Big D Shield. It's, it must be nice. It must be nice. That is a wrap for this episode. Remember, please subscribe to the podcast. You can give it a thumbs up in the reviews. Write a positive review. I appreciate it. And consider becoming a patron of the program. You'll get cool stuff, exclusive content. Links are all at thepetecalendarshow.com and in the description of the podcast. Thanks so much for your support. We'll talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.